Welcome to The Boiling Frog, where we contemplate the intersection of economics, psychology, politics, history, and science. I'm Mark Olbert. And I'm Seth Rosenblatt. Seth, we've said in a number of previous podcasts that we need to dive deeper into the most fundamental requirement of democracy, which is having elections and having the right to vote. Yeah, that's right. This is a meaty topic, so we're going to focus largely just on the U.S., but perhaps bring in a few international examples just to show some contrast. I think given the scope of the topic, we also ought to approach it in sections. Let's talk about who votes, what we vote for, how we vote, how elections are funded, and how we operate elections. Yes, that makes sense. I mean, you would think a lot of these issues are obvious or standardized, but it's actually quite amazing how these issues are neither well understood by most Americans and certainly not consistent across a country that professes this as a key foundational principle. Exactly who gets to exercise power in a democracy is not itself defined or limited by pursuit of democratic principles. It's a matter of community choice, which is why there are so many examples of different rules regarding who gets to vote and of the rules themselves evolving over time, like the famous one of women being granted the right to vote in the U.S. only decades after it was founded. And those rules can also vary by location, even in the same era or time frame, right? That reminds me of one of my father's pet peeves. You know, he always said that he preferred that states didn't exist at all. You know, he clearly wasn't a fan of federalism, right? Because it just baffles him in general that someone born in one state fundamentally had different rights than someone born in another state. Of course, there are reasons to argue, and I think we actually have argued, that states should be able to control some level of rights for their residents. But when it comes to this most fundamental of rights, voting, It is, I agree, really, really strange that we allow differences across the country. It just seems counter to the entire concept of democracy. So as to the concepts and principles of democracy in the U.S., let's first examine the most peculiar statement that, quote, all men are created equal, when we know the founders didn't really mean that, although they did mean just men, right? (laughs) That's a wonderfully powerful and evocative phrase. But like you said, we need to remember the Constitution, which came after the Declaration of Independence, most definitely did not consider all men to be equal. It allowed for discrimination on the basis of race, wealth, and other factors as well. It's also important to have some more context here. The Constitution was created before the Industrial Revolution, and our founders could never have contemplated how the massive wealth creation that followed and other changes in our society could challenge these principles. There was already a wealthy class, of course. It just wasn't as wealthy and hence not as potentially powerful as it was going to become. And they also probably didn't see the growth and dominance of political parties. Or the unintended consequences of dramatically expanding the size of the nation, which made it far more difficult to govern and hold elections. Yeah, it's hard to imagine that they pictured a territory as thinly populated as Montana, having equal representation to New York, right, in one body of Congress. We effectively grant more political power to people in those thinly populated states, undermining yet again the concept that all men are created equal. Of course, that had already been compromised away by the design of the U.S. Senate, which explicitly sought to make people in smaller states more powerful. So let's talk about how these democratic principles have changed over the course of U.S. history as our society became more complex and more fragmented, frankly. For one thing, we have to remember senators weren't initially elected by the citizens directly. The Senate was envisioned more akin to being an elected House of Lords whose members were appointed by the state legislatures. And the Senate itself was essentially a compromise, right, to give smaller states more representation. 
John Adams also famously thought the Senate would be a good place to put would-be aristocrats to make sure their power wouldn't be used to overthrow the country. <laughs> right. But of course, you know, who can vote has changed dramatically over time. Initially, we tended to enfranchise just those who were paying for community services rather than all the people making up the community. But the good news is that in general, the voting population has broadened over time, right? It started with white landowning men, then it went to white men, <laughs> then it went to men, <laughs> then it went to all adults, albeit enforced inconsistently, and then it eventually went to all adults 18 and over, at least those who aren't in prison. But it wasn't a simple progression towards broader voting rights. There were many efforts made along the way and continue to be made to suppress the vote among various groups, most notably blacks in southern states all the way through the 1960s until the Voting Rights Act was passed. Which unfortunately, since 2013, has been actually scaled back by the Supreme Court, freeing states to once again indulge in this sort of voter suppression. So despite the progress we've made and the fundamental tenets of our nation, the Constitution's lack of specifics about the breadth of the franchise limits how what ought to be a fundamental right can be exercised. You know, and there's another big thing that has changed, but we've largely ignored this change as it relates to voting, and that's technology. There are ways to vote now other than to pack up your horse and buggy to travel <laughs> over long distances, right, to vote in person. We take for granted that Tuesday is election day in the U.S., but that was merely the result of 18th century conditions. Voters could attend church on Sunday, travel to the polling location, which was usually in the county seat, on Monday, and vote before Wednesday, which happened to be the day when most farmers would sell their produce at the market. You know, when we may be wondering why we picked November for election day, it happened to be that that's because the harvest would have been completed, but it was before, like, the real bad part of winter, which would have impeded transportation. That was the sort of the sweet spot of why we decided to vote then. The founders would never have dreamed that one day it would be possible for people to vote securely and privately from wherever they happened to be, courtesy of their smartphones. Yeah, even though Jefferson was a pretty smart guy, he probably never envisioned WhatsApp. <laughs> so let's talk about what offices we actually vote for, right? It's a more complex discussion than it may seem, right? For certain positions, it probably seems obvious that they should be elected by the citizenry. Well, you know, the president, Congress, governors, you know, state representatives, etc. But even then, it's not so obvious that the founders thought it was wrong to have federal senators appointed by state legislatures. Yeah, that's fair. And in general, elected representatives then hire or appoint others with subject matter expertise, you know, or technocrats, sometimes they're called. Historically, I think this was found to be both more efficient and less prone to corruption, since legislators running for office tend to always need money. Yeah, and on the local level, right, our local school board, we were elected there. We hired a superintendent. That person was the subject matter expert who knew how to run schools. On a related front, many people in San Carlos and other San Mateo County communities don't actually realize how many important representative roles there are which they don't get to vote on. The positions, like for state-required transportation authorities, are instead filled by a council of mayors. But certain positions kind of feel like they're in a gray area, right? Because they combine the notions of, you know, representing the people as well as providing subject matter expertise. And in this category, I'm thinking of people like judges, sheriffs, city treasurers, city clerks, maybe. And there's practically no single standard across the country or even within a state on how to handle these positions. I mean, for example, some judges are elected, some are appointed by someone else who's elected. Historically, I think there were two general reasons for why a position would end up being filled by somebody who was hired or appointed rather than be elected. 
For one thing, legislative bodies are always by design slow and deliberative. That can get in the way of communities managing themselves efficiently. I mean, think what would be involved if this city council in San Carlos had to decide on every single stop sign that was going to be put up on a street corner. But beyond that, there's also historical inertia. Once a position is defined as an elected one, it's kind of hard to change. So maybe let's outline some pros and cons of electing positions in these gray areas, you know, judges and sheriffs, for example. Well, on the pro side, an elected official should be more responsive to the public will, at least in theory. And I guess it's also a check on corruption, right? So you have to stand before voters, right? Not just your peers to hold that public power. And a separately elected position can provide accountability over other elected officials. For example, an elected city controller can more easily ensure a city council doesn't waste money than can one that's appointed by the council itself. Yeah, that makes sense. But there's a bunch of cons, too, right? I mean, I, the first one I think of is the fact that, you know, an elected official could be focused on re-election rather than, you know, what I think of as doing the right thing. And there's a reason we often want officials to be insulated from political consideration. And this is, in theory, how the Supreme Court should operate. But maybe, as we've learned, it doesn't always work in practice. <laughs> We also have to remember humans are occasionally subject to mob psychology, which generally results in great harm to social institutions. So it's useful to have some bastions of public power that can stand up to the mob until cooler heads can prevail. Yeah, and another potential con is just the inefficiency by design, right, associated with an elected body, just like the stop sign example you stated earlier. Another challenge is that the public generally doesn't have good enough information or expertise to assess certain candidates' abilities to be effective in an elected position, especially for roles like the sheriff or a judge that require a lot of technical knowledge. Yeah, that's right. In the election that's happening right now, and I just got my ballot, right, that it lists multiple judges, but only a single judge in many of the races with just a yes-no vote. I mean, how am I practically able to exercise any Democratic power with that? I, I always cringe about making those choices myself, too, for exactly that reason. But that may be one of the reasons why Jefferson famously observed that elections don't guarantee good government. They merely guarantee representative government. <laughs> so then how do we balance these issues and decide which positions should be elected? I think the fundamental problem is the old classic one of who watches the watchman. Despite thousands of years of trying different approaches, there doesn't appear to be a good solution to that problem. Sometimes the law itself needs to be a bulwark against the mob. Yeah, and maybe a perfect example of this is one that's come up recently in relation to election officials, right? Secretary of States, you know, on a state level, as well as county election officials, too. On the one hand, those people are responsible for the most precious right, namely the right to vote, and should be held accountable for it, which argues they should be elected. On the other hand, as elected officials, they would then be subject to political pressure, which argues that perhaps they should be appointed. Yeah, and a good example was Brad Raffensperger in Georgia, right? He stood up to Trump, but, you know, he may have suffered politically because of it. Right now, counties across the country are positioned to vote for people running for election of officer positions who do not, by any shape or form, embody the principles of democracy or the need to protect voting rights. Yeah, it's really scary, actually. And it reminds me that there's a difference between democracy and liberty. Sometimes people willingly vote for representatives and issues that limit their own and certainly other people's liberty. But I also know, on the other hand, it's fair to argue that if county clerks were appointed instead of elected, they're at least equally at risk of being corrupted because then they're beholden to the people who appointed them. Which is why one of the important but less than perfect ways of addressing that who watches the watchman problem is to put standards in the law on how those people need to execute their roles so they can stand up to their elected bosses when that's necessary. 
Yeah, I 100% agree. Now let's talk about one of my, and I think your, pet peeves on how we run our democracy today. And I'm talking about public initiatives and propositions. These are essentially a workaround of both the elected and appointed representatives. This is allowed by many state constitutions, including California. But whatever good voter-based initiatives provide, they also open the door to parties and interests using economic power to shape laws in their favor. It also moves lawmaking out of the give and take of politics, which is really essential for maintaining overall satisfaction with government. Voters in a voting booth can't negotiate with other voters about the terms of competing or various initiatives. That's only possible through the representational process. And I think the irony here is that the initiative process, I mean, at least in California, was designed to blunt the potential power interests that were corrupting our elected representatives. But in practice, the initiative process is now just an expression of power interests. I mean, you could spend enough money and get anything on the ballot and advertise it, you know, promote it any way you want. Although it has the veneer of democracy, the initiative process often puts voters in a position of having to make choices without them having the time or opportunity to research the trade-offs. All too often, they get limited to being influenced only by ads on TV, which strikes me as a pretty poor way of determining the will of the people. <laughs> For example, one of the most ridiculous proposition in this November's ballot in California is... I kid you not, to ask voters to opine on the staffing standards for dialysis clinics. It doesn't take a political science degree to know that we, the public, are wholly unqualified to understand <laughs> that issue. We shouldn't take the time to understand it. And then, frankly, it's just a power play by someone with a specific self-interest. And more amazing yet, it's the third time that it's appearing on the ballot, showing that, as always in American politics, money not only talks, but can keep talking. All of which is why nowadays I generally tend to vote against voter-based initiatives, even if I agree with them. I think we can agree that who gets to vote and the offices which we vote for are a critical part of democracy and, of course, will always be a source of ongoing contention. So clearly campaigns are a necessary part of a representative democracy and hence are a public good. So let's talk about who pays for them. Unlike many other countries, the U.S. has chosen a campaign finance system that largely revolves around private money. The Supreme Court has even equated spending money in campaigns with free speech, further enshrining this choice. Which to me is another demonstration of the hypocrisy of originalism that we've talked about in previous podcasts. Clearly, the founders could not have imagined the role that economic power and money would play in politics today. So, Seth, as the international travel member of this duo, how do other countries approach campaign finance? Well, as you could imagine, I mean, it varies widely, right, in countries around the world, but most other democracies have some hybrid system, right, that includes at least some significant public financing element. I mean, that could be subsidizing political mailers, providing broad-based matching funds to potentially outright funding of political parties, you know, and things like that. Also, I think many countries restrict the campaigning season, which by definition is going to lower cost. Yeah, that, that's right. But the bottom line is that, as we discussed in our very first podcast, Laissez-faire economics doesn't handle public goods very well, right? And that includes running a democracy. One way to think about this is that we accept inequities in capitalism. It's accepted that not everyone who wants a vote can afford one. But treating political campaigning like capitalism corrupts the very notion of equal voices and representation. If we believe that democracy means reflecting the voice of the people and that everyone is equal before the law, then it's kind of odd that we sanction a system where some people have more voting power than others. Few of us would tolerate having the richest person in town getting the police force to patrol their house more often than ours just because he's better off financially. 
So should privately funded elections actually be unconstitutional? We appear to be supporting a system that isn't consistent with its own stated values. The American system seems to, like so many other issues we've discussed, derive from the fundamental conflict between the human as an individual and the human as a member of a community. Communities, as we always say, allow us as individuals to achieve more than we ever could as individuals. So having a high-functioning community is critical and in our self-interest. But our instinct is to let those who seek to make public decisions fund their campaigns privately because they are running as individuals, admittedly often aligned with others who share their views. So let's pivot, though, from the philosophical to the practical and discuss the real and, frankly, mostly negative impacts of privately funding elections. There's both some obvious ones and some non-obvious impacts. Of course, the most well-understood impact is that private funding can easily corrupt the system. It allows undue power and influences we've discussed. We tend to call those special interests, but, right, but it could be a lot of things. And it doesn't have to be outright corruption, because elected officials know who their big donors are, and so those donors end up with greater access to the electeds. The electeds also certainly have in the back of their mind who they need to keep happy and who they don't want to make angry with their decisions. <laughs> we might call this kind of thing soft corruption. You know, Mark, I don't even know if you know this, but when I ran for school board the first time, I actually received one corporate donation. It was about $250 from a local developer. I never actually spoke to that person after he made the donation and no issue ever came up on the school board that affected him. But to this day, I still feel a little dirty about taking that donation, which of course pales in comparison, right, to what almost every other candidate does. That's one of the two reasons I never had an interest in running for higher office. I couldn't figure out how I could pitch people for money while simultaneously making clear to them that they were absolutely not purchasing any kind of special access or consideration. But I think another negative and certainly underappreciated consequence of our private funding system for election is that it forces state and federal officials in particular to spend an incredible amount of their time raising money. Almost every representative who I can recall ever being asked about it will tell you they're always running for their seat. They're always raising money. Yeah, essentially they're fundraising instead of actually working for us. Think how much more our representatives could get done if they didn't have to raise money. I think another unappreciated consequence is that our current system limits the pool of candidates because it's just too difficult and expensive to run. Yeah, and this is also limited, though, by membership and influence within a political party, but that's a topic for another podcast. <laughs> the economic reality, though, affects every position, particularly local races like school boards and city councils, which are effectively the entry-level positions into the political hierarchy. That's right. The biggest objection that we used to hear from community members who tell us they don't want to run for these positions is because of the investment of time and money to campaign. Which ends up limiting the pool to the well-off. Moreover, we also have to remember that it puts ethnic and racial groups which have been subject to economic discrimination in the past at a disadvantage. <laughs> I mean, it's not a coincidence that you and I, two successful capitalist pigs, had the time <laughs> and resources to become local <laughs> elected officials. I guess that's right. So therefore, let's talk about the case for publicly funded elections. But I know that most Americans generally oppose that notion. So why do you think that is? For at least three reasons, I think. First, it costs public money, potentially resulting in higher taxes or fewer public services. Second, there are a lot of entrenched interests that would be harmed by curtailing or eliminating private financing of elections not the least of which is it would complicate those with economic clout trying to buy political influence. Right. 
And finally, people fear the government would become self-perpetuating and infringe their individual liberties to benefit a self-sustaining oligarchy. That's not an unrealistic fear, in my personal opinion, but it doesn't mean there's no role for the public financing of elections. I get that, but I think I would argue, despite that, and although it may seem paradoxical, spending money on publicly funded elections could actually save the public money. I mean, imagine that policymakers had no need to pay back special interest, which could include corporations and unions, by the way, right? Both of which would have much less power. Think of elected officials spending far less time raising money and exposing themselves to these corruptive influences and more time, frankly, doing the job they're elected to do. It would also increase civic participation by broadening the pool of potential candidates which would have the knock-on effect of increasing overall faith in the political process. I think so, but let me recognize that it's not that simple. There are some real issues we'd have to figure out if we had a publicly funded election system. And the first that comes to mind for me is how I think about, you know, keeping out the bozos, right? <laughs> it's If it's so easy to run that we'd have lots of unqualified people stepping up, and it seems like we already have that right now, <laughs> so it'd be a little bit easier. Yeah, that's, it reminds me, it's kind of just like with email, which is incredibly cheap to produce and transmit. We might have to accept a really high level of spam. Yeah, and we'd have to ensure that public funds only get spent on like legitimate campaign activities. You know, we recognize candidates, you know, are always traveling somewhere to make a speech. You know, where do you draw the line, you know, in, in what's a campaign and what's not? And what do you do regarding efforts to lobby someone who is already elected? Or when someone just wants to make a contribution to a candidate despite the campaign being publicly funded. That strikes me as a pretty clear example of someone exercising their freedom of speech, which most of us would be kind of loath to curtail. But even with those issues, I think we're both arguing that some degree of public funding of elections needs to be seriously considered, I mean, a lot more than, you know, we've done so far. Seth, we talked about the significance of who gets to vote, what offices we vote for, and how elections are paid for. I think it's also worth spending a few minutes discussing how we organize the elections themselves. We've already discussed the historical vestige of having elections on Tuesday, which, by the way, is, it's not a holiday, so many people still have to work, um, as clearly both the U.S. mail and the Internet, you know, should make that moot. You know, so talk about being conservative. I mean, we're clinging to an administrative requirement based on a 200-year-old antiquated <laughs> context. There's another more interesting and unappreciated historical vestige that's also in play. We assume we have to allocate voting power by drawing lines on a map. That clearly was important and probably more relevant, right, when people didn't move around a lot, for sure. But nowadays, our lives span multiple geographic communities or even regions. Many of us live in one place, work someplace else, and shop in many places. Take all the people who commute to jobs in San Mateo County. They benefit the communities in which they work, but they have no local political power, other than maybe some as a proxy through their employer. To me, that just doesn't seem fair somehow. Yeah, I understand that. But in our current systems, we have to draw the lines right somewhere and somehow. I agree. That's what the redistricting process, driven by the constitutionally mandated decennial census, does. But while it's important to update boundaries, the process itself is subject to corruption through gerrymandering drawing the lines to benefit particular elected officials or political parties. You know, gerrymandering is one of those like done in plain sight corruption issues that no one wants to do anything about. I mean, it's almost cartoonishly sinister <laughs> in its obviousness. Right? I think that's because the people responsible for fixing the problem are the ones who would be harmed by the fix. And it generally only comes up once a decade, letting their boundary choices be overshadowed by a myriad of other decisions they make that have a lot more immediate impact. 
A related issue is that this country seems to be obsessed with the power of states. I mean, we referenced this a little bit earlier, right? I mean, I realize we're the United States of America, but particularly as it relates to federal representation, it doesn't seem to make much sense to me to allocate so much political power to the states. And the first and most obvious problem, of course, is the Electoral College, right? It's just another form of gerrymandering, right? The president doesn't represent states. But a less appreciated example may be how we draw those congressional districts. It's not a law of physics that congressional districts for the House of Representatives need to be confined within a single state, right? States are already representative in the Senate, whereas communities of interest certainly exist over state borders. Yeah, I can think of a number of examples right off the top of my head that demonstrate that. I mean, in California, uh, with the border with Nevada, consider Tahoe and Reno. Uh, those two communities overlap and interact a lot. And the fact that there's a state boundary between them in many ways is almost irrelevant from a political point of view. And then there's also the example of Kansas City, Kansas and Kansas City, Missouri, which they're adjacent to each other and they share the same name. Right. And, and a lot of people work in one and live in the other. Yeah. And there's a, and there's a ton of these examples. You know, there's also this strange dynamic where states define rules for national elections, which seems odd, right? Even if you believe that states should offer different rights in general, it's odd that this power extends to a sort of our like uber right of voting. And rather than what seems to be the more appropriate solution, which is having a single uniform set of rights around voting and how we run elections. I mean, giving states this power seems counter to the very principles of our democracy. I suspect that's probably because there's no direct economic self-interest involved with voting. Because where such a benefit does exist, the states work to solve the problem of having too much diversity among their laws. That's why they got together, all of them as far as I can remember, and negotiated and adopted the Uniform Commercial Code to make it possible for businesses to operate under more or less the same set of rules throughout the entire country. Yeah, although on a side note, that didn't eliminate all the differences, which is why, right, almost all large businesses incorporate in Delaware, you know, which sort of defines the de facto national standard for <laughs> corporate law. There are a number of other structural defaults about how we run elections that we don't tend to think about much. Their historical holdovers are boiling frog-like evolutions. <laughs> I mean, the first thing that jumps out at me is that the U.S. is fairly unique in the length of time that we have an election season. I mean, it's almost to the point where it's always election season. Also, we don't think much about the default process of how we narrow down our choices with primaries based on the candidates of particular political parties. Yeah, I mean, there are efforts in some jurisdictions to promote open primaries. I mean, California does this to a limited extent. Open primaries, you know, they have the potential to limit fringe candidates since you have to appeal to everyone. And they also recognize that to the overall pool of voters, the differences between candidates in the same party may be more relevant than the differences between candidates of different parties. There's another thing, too, though. The U.S. voting model assumes voters prefer their chosen candidate above all other candidates in all circumstances. But if you stop to think about it, like most matters of personal preference, our rankings are contingent on who might be able to win. I might prefer candidate A over B and C, but if A can't win, that doesn't mean I don't care who does. Addressing that flaw in how we currently cast our votes is what ranked choice voting is all about. I mean, all of these issues we just discussed tell us that we at least need to figure out how to organize our elections more consistent with and reflective of our stated political values, because clearly, in many cases, they don't align well. Of all the things we've discussed so far, clearly the most important feature of any representative democratic system is simply who gets to vote. It's also been and continues to be a source of conflict and legislation. 
If the power in a democratic system derives from the people, defining just who makes up the people is key. You know, and some of that conflict results from people leveraging power to maintain that power, including using the power of money, as we discussed, to corrupt the system. The worst single example of that is how the U.S. Constitution denied voting rights to black people while simultaneously according the states they lived in more political power by counting black slaves as three-fifths of a person. Not to mention the founders, who are all male, choosing to continue to exclude women from the entire political process. Despite Abigail Adams, among others, imploring her husband John to recognize the important role women played in the revolution, which gave rise to the nation in the first place. I often wondered what their bedroom conversations were like when he came home. I guess we'll never know. You know, another more subtle and a modern example, right, is using power to manipulate who votes by convincing potential voters, oh, it's too hard to vote or that their vote won't make a difference. I mean, this is happening a lot in red states in particular right now. And of course, money lets individuals do something akin to an individual shouting down everyone else in a public group or meeting, something that few of us would ever tolerate in real life. I mean, I've sat in on group meetings where somebody tries to occupy the microphone and there's always somebody who will stand up and say, give give someone else a chance to speak. (laughs) I mean, it is sort of weird that in a modern industrialized country that promotes itself as the leader in democracy, I mean, we treat elections the same way we sell pizza or automobiles, <laughs> right, as a sort of economic good. Clearly, there is a serious problem in this country regarding how we actually cast ballots, given the approaches that are already available to us. It's somewhat shocking that mail-in voting isn't universal, that not every state allows easy in-person voting, that we put up unnecessary barriers to voting. The list just goes on. Mark, I mean, we clearly agree that we need to do a better job at making it easier for everyone to vote and to have this level playing field. But I do want to bring up one more group of U.S. citizens that hasn't yet attained universal suffrage. And I'm speaking of convicts. We've always accepted this as a given, but it's always puzzled me why. The Supreme Court ruled in 1974 that ordinary convicted felons can be barred from voting without violating the 14th Amendment, which would seem to otherwise protect that right, even though I doubt that's what the people who drafted the 14th Amendment intended. In many states, even ex-convicts can't vote. They've served their time, but still have a lasting punishment. I mean, that seems inconsistent with the principle of having served one's time. And I do appreciate that this has become an issue in different parts of the country that's being debated right now. The resistance to changing it is really pervasive. I mean, look at Florida. Florida voters restored the voting rights of ex-felons through an initiative statute, but the law was partially nullified by their state legislature. Hardly an example of the will of the people being the ultimate authority. (laughs) That's right. But may I present an even more provocative and interesting question that I can't recall anyone ever asking? Why can't current convicts vote? I mean, it seems to me like there are four general reasons why we send people to jail. One, it's about punishment or, you know, some sense of justice. Two, it's about rehabilitation. Three, it's certainly about public safety, right, and keeping these people away from, you know, others they may harm. And the fourth is some a deterrent that, you know, we could provide. How does taking away voting from these folks support any of those goals? I mean, if anything, you feel like you want these people to be more engaged in society, not less. Fundamentally, I think it's like many things, just a political decision. I bet that it gets enacted because it lets electeds position themselves as tough on crime, which generally sells well with the public. Yeah, I get why that wouldn't be particularly politically popular. So let me throw out another idea that goes against this sort of American brand of liberty, right? Should we institute 
mandatory voting. Well, of course, the main argument against it is that we cherish our individual freedom, including the freedom not to vote. Yeah, I realize that, you know, people even around the world have mixed feelings about this. I mean, there are only 21 countries around the world, you know, so that's really one tenth roughly of all the countries that have compulsory voting. And I believe only 10 of them actually enforce it. And I know one of those is Australia. But, you know, the penalty for not voting there is, I think, just a small fine. Mandatory voting does feel very un-American because it would reduce personal liberty in a literal sense. But there is an argument that it would bolster democracy. And there are other examples of compulsory community service that we already accept as a necessary civic duty, like jury service. Yeah, I mean, that's a perfect example of how mandatory voting, just like mandatory jury service, would address the prisoner's dilemma problem. You know, instead of the current situation where I feel like, well, I could stay home and not vote because, you know, others will take care of it for me. It would also take away the power of the fringe, the ones who are energized to vote and therefore result in more moderate electeds. I mean, people would certainly pay more attention to candidates and issues because they have to. And I think, you know, that could change the very culture and frame of how we look at elections. I mean, certainly in a positive way. And on on top of that, in an ideal world, we would no longer have to invest the time, effort and money on getting out the vote. Campaigning could actually be about the power of ideas and persuasion. Well, that would be something, wouldn't it? (laughs) Um, You know, I realize, though, that mandatory voting would be a tough sell in the U.S. So what about just making voting easier? I mean, for everyone eligible to vote. I mean, it seems pretty obvious that a series of legal requirements, even constitutional ones, should be put in place to make voting simple, easy and accessible for every eligible voter, regardless of what state you live in. I can already hear the charges of it'll encourage voter fraud getting made. They already are with our current approach, even though that's a complete shibboleth. Multiple academic studies have shown the incidence of voter fraud is so close to zero as to be irrelevant in deciding election outcomes. Yeah, I mean, more importantly, I mean, we manage similar risks in all kinds of other things we do, you know, in online commerce, for example, that, you know, they're pretty significant to our individual well-being and the community well-being. I mean, we just demand that online vendors, for example, accept payments in a secure manner. So why couldn't we do the same thing with voting? That's right. And those systems, you know, are they perfect? No, nothing is. But they work well enough that we generally don't worry about the downside risk because the upside benefits are so large. Right. I mean, if we can enable online commerce, surely we can enable online voting in a secure enough way to unlock the enormous value of widespread voter participation. I I couldn't agree more. I mean, for goodness sake, we put people on the moon using stone knives and bearskin technology 50 years ago. (laughs) Creating a secure enough online voting system is well within the realm of possibility. Of course... Greater voter participation is precisely what those seeking to preserve the status quo ante don't want. Heavens, they might lose some of the advantages they've granted themselves under the current system. Yeah, yet another example of the inherent corruption in keeping tomorrow looking like yesterday. (laughs) Well, that was a really interesting discussion, a lot more so than I initially thought it would be. Please thank your wife for suggesting that we follow through on the topic. I'll, I'll do that for sure. But, you know, I think we ought to summarize here, right, for our listeners, you know, things that we can do or support having done, I mean, to expand voter participation in our democracy. I mean, it really feels like we need a new and improved Voters' Bill of Rights. I mean, ideally done through one or more constitutional amendments. And fundamentally, I think that it should be about protecting the right for everyone to vote, making it as simple as possible to vote securely, separating as much as we can economic and political power from influencing who can vote, encouraging civic participation, and fostering a culture of debating ideas. So if we were to draft such a Voters' Bill of Rights, 
I think it would contain a number of things. I mean, the first is this commitment to making voting as easy as possible. Another thing is to have a single set of standards that all states must meet, which would include things like allowing for mail and hopefully online voting, requiring a minimum number of polling places based on community population, requiring polling places have to be within a certain maximum distance of every voter, and requiring that voter identification documents be easily and cheaply obtainable. I mean, we could also consider mandatory voting, as we discussed. We certainly should have elections occur over multiple days, you know, and or make Election Day a federal holiday and even expand the public funding of elections. And one way that we've talked about this in the past, you and I, is maybe even allowing local governments to do pilot programs of at least partially publicly funded elections. I think we'd learn a lot about um, how that system works and how we could continue to improve it. And I think it should also contain very strong bans against any form of gerrymandering. And it ought to eliminate the Electoral College so all votes have equal weight. Amen. And lastly, I think it ought to define strong standards on how election officials must execute their roles. Yes, this would be an amazing set of amendments to the Constitution. But I think there are also some broader things we should consider doing. I mean, one may be, how do we reform the U.S. Senate? I mean, maybe even abolish it. I mean, after all, it's just another more dramatic form of gerrymandering. And in places like California, which have that public initiative process that we talked about, it really ought to be reformed to limit the role of economic power in putting items before voters. I mean, personally, Mark, I wouldn't lose any sleep if the initiative process went away tomorrow. I think, again, seemingly paradoxically, it would actually improve democracy by forcing our elected representatives to craft better solutions on our behalf. We also ought to debate whether we should move away from strictly following geography or arbitrary state boundaries in how we define communities. Yeah, I mean, when the world is flat, and, and certainly if our country is flat, I mean, metaphorically speaking, of course, you know, it would be interesting to imagine a political and government structure that reflects this new reality, you know, in a way that our lives don't have the boundaries they once did. That's the power of the communities of interest concept, where the elections you participate in are determined by where you spend your life. Well, Mark, it is fun to come to the realization that in little over half an hour, you and I have completely fixed democracy. If only more people would just listen to us. You know, ironically, <laughs> it would take our benevolent dictatorship to accomplish this. Seriously, though, voting rights are an extremely important topic, probably the single most important one in any representative democracy. It deserves all the attention you and I and our listeners can muster to define and defend them. Yeah, of course, I agree with that. And it's a perfect note to end this podcast on. So thank you, Mark. And thanks to our listeners. Signing off, this is Seth. And Mark. Hoping that you vote early and often. <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. See you next time. This podcast is copyright Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. All rights reserved. The Boiling Frog podcast is written, produced, and hosted by Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. Audio engineering and technical support provided by Caroline Olbert. Theme song composed by Benjamin Rosenblatt. Music arrangement and production by Mia Rosenblatt. For more information, resources, or to subscribe to this podcast, please visit our website at www.theboilingfrog.net.